This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin this morning, we need to have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, to make sure you are in fellowship, ready to study the Word, ready to focus. Everybody looks a lot more awake this second hour than they did the first hour. I guess we got everybody going a little bit, thinking a little a little bit this morning, so... Uh, We'll uh, focus on the Word. We'll have a word of prayer. Let's uh, bow our heads together, and I'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you that we can come together in a free nation to worship you, to study your word. Father, we pray that you would continue to preserve our freedoms, to protect our nation. We pray for wisdom for our leaders, for our president, for members of Congress, for our military leaders. We pray for those who are out in the field, for those who are gathering intelligence, for those who are on the ground, those who are Uh, In dangerous circumstances and situations, we pray that you would protect them. We pray that you would enable those who are developing intelligence to have the right contacts, to get the right information, to be able to focus on the uh, correct pieces of data that they get, and to be able to properly interpret them. We pray that the enemy would make mistakes and that they would be confounded. Father, we pray now as we gather together as a body of believers that we would be able to concentrate and focus on your word this morning. There is nothing in life more serious, more important, more crucial for us than to know what you have to say to us in your word and to learn how to think as you would have us to think. Now, Father, we pray that you would give us the uh, humility to be objective as we study your word, to be willing to face the mirror of your word and to honestly... uh, Apply that which we see in the Word that we need to apply in our own lives. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Second John. Second John, and we continue in the opening salutation. Continue our study. Remember, this is written by John the Apostle, who refers to himself in the opening verse as John the Elder. He is emphasizing uh, his pastoral relationship to this congregation. He is not emphasizing his apostolic authority. They know who he is. They know he is an apostle. And if we are correct in uh, dating this epistle to the time when he is on the Isle of Patmos, uh, to the time when he is uh, pastoring or in, in absentia, then 
Uh, he is, uh, they would know who he is. They would know his authority. They were familiar with his authority as an apostle, having heard him, having understood him, having uh, sat under his teaching many times. He addresses this congregation under the uh, metaphor of a lady, to the elect lady and her children. The term her children refers to the members in the congregation. And then he says, uh, whom... I love in truth. We've corrected the translation there because in the Greek it is uh, the preposition in, E-N, plus the instrumental dative of aletheia, who I love by means of truth or by means of doctrine. Now, And then he says, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth. Now, last time we began to look at this concept of truth as it is developed in the New Testament, under, trying to analyze or as it's developed in the Scripture. Last time we looked primarily at the Old Testament. We are looking at the concept of what is, what is truth. Let's have some review so we don't get too lost if you weren't here last time. Point number one was the truth in the Old Testament is related to the Hebrew noun emet. And I will put this up on the overhead. These are the two key letters right here. This letter, the Aleph in Hebrew, is not a is a consonant. It is not a vowel. And it is usually uh, transliterated with a, something that looks like an English apostrophe. The vowel under it here is the... Is uh, actually in this word, it's three dots, and that's a transliterated as an as an e. So it looks like this in English, Emmet. Now the root, as I said last night, that alpha mame is related to another noun which we are more familiar with, and that is the noun amen, which we transliterate as amen, which is, excuse me, in the verb form, excuse me, it's a verb amen, and the verb is, has as its meaning belief or to believe, I'm getting my nouns and verbs confused this morning, believe, trust, rely on, have confidence in, that is the main idea of the verb amen. And at its very core is this idea of something that is firm, something that is solid, something that is stable, and provides a solid uh, foundation. This is, seems to be the core meaning of this word. For example, you have a, another word, a cognate of this word, amuna. As you can see, it has the uh, Alpha, Mame, Noon, same as Amen. Amuna is a noun, feminine, plural, refers to doorposts. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 18.16. At that time, Hezekiah cut off the gold from the doors of the temple of the Lord and from the doorposts. There's the word Amuna, the doorpost. And this has to do with that, uh, the, the foundation that, uh, around the, uh, around the door which provided support. For the temple, so it refers to that which is stable. In the hyphial uh, stem of the verb, it means to cause something to be certain or sure. So it has this idea of something that is certain, something that is stable, something that is unshakable, something that has a uh, uh, 
solid provides a solid foundation and from that we derive the implication that in the very word for truth itself it relates something that is an absolute it suggests an absolute a universal truth something that is true at all times in every place and in every culture now this runs counter to the concept of truth that is held at a popular level in most of our culture. In our culture, truth is something that either comes from the society at large, it is the majority opinion, or it is something that is isolated to the individual. Truth is what you perceive it to be, whatever works for you. Often you've run into this kind of situation where you are witnessing to someone and uh, you're explaining the gospel and the importance of doctrine and your life, and they'll say, well, I'm so glad you found that and that that works for you. And what they mean by that is this is true for you, but it's not true for me, because truth isn't absolute anymore. Truth has become relative. And in other situations, you might say, well, there are certain things that are true if you are uh, in a uh, Hindu culture. There's other things that are true if you're Perhaps Russian, African, South American, every culture has their truths. So culture then becomes the arbiter of truth. But if culture becomes the determiner of truth, then how can we as a Western American United States or Western European culture have ever gone to war against Adolf Hitler? How can we ever say that what Hitler did in the Holocaust was wrong? I mean, it was right for them. I mean, if that's your view of truth, is truth derives from the culture, then that was a uh, that was a truth that they derived on their own, and that is just our cultural truth against their cultural truth. Who's to say who is absolutely right or who is absolutely wrong? Now, this is important to understand because of where we are in light of this current situation: the war against terrorism, the influence of Islam on the terrorism war and also the rise of this pacifistic peace movement that's against the war in Iraq. See, what has happened in our culture since the early 60s is this noticeable shift, not that there wasn't relative thinking before, but it becomes a cultural norm uh, really by the early 60s. It's the same kind of thinking that gave rise to the pacifism of the of the 60s and the hippies and back then and that is the idea that that although it wasn't as clearly stated back then the idea is that what's true for one group is not necessarily true for another and who has the right to go impose their truth at any level on somebody else so and and this is what's come to be called postmodernism and if you want to have a date for Generally speaking, when postmodernism takes, starts to take over or manifest itself, you go back to 1900. That doesn't mean that everybody after 1900 is a postmodernist, but that's when it starts to develop. That's when the foundation of this kind of thinking was laid, and it really doesn't work itself out at a popular level until probably the, the 60s. Now, this is why we get into these situations in our country where people start having uh, you start having these major cultural clashes in the U.S. between people who are who think one way and people who think another way. And if you look at most of the people who are influencing this anti-war pacifist uh, 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 
movement against going to war against Iraq, these are the same people who think in a postmodern factor. They have no external absolute by which to judge, evaluate uh, anything. Now, that doesn't mean that going to war against Iraq is necessarily the right decision. I'm not saying that. It may be. I'm not privy to all the factors there. I'm merely making a point about what happens when you have pacifists come along. They are operating on the same principle that if they had dominated at World War II, we would never have gone to war against Hitler because how can you say that something else is going wrong? It's the same kind of thinking that um, that ultimately in, ends up in, in justifying just about anything because every culture is right and no culture is righter or more right or more correct than any other culture. Therefore, there's no superior standard uh, you can go to, you can appeal to, to evaluate and determine what in one culture, what in another culture is is correct or true. So the Bible stands in complete contradiction to this. The Bible presents a view that there is a truth. There is an absolute truth. It is grounded in the person of God and that that absolute truth is unshakable. It is not determined by by people. It is not determined by creatures. It is determined by the thought of God. The second point I made last time is that in the Bible, truth is related to the character of God. In the essence box, we use the word veracity to communicate the truth of God. God is truth. It is in his character. It is not some sort of external, abstract idea. Third, we saw that truth in the Old Testament is related to the Hebrew word chesed. The Hebrew word chesed looks like this, C-H-E-S-E-D, which is translated loving kindness, faithful love, loyal love. It has a number of different ideas, and it is usually connected to to truth in many phrases. We went over these last time, Genesis 24, uh, 27, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his chesed, his loving kindness, and his truth toward my master. Uh, so there you see those two words linked together. Exodus 34, 6 talks about God as compassion and gracious, slow to anger and abounding, and loving kindness and truth. Second Samuel 2, 6 May the Lord show loving kindness and truth to you, chesed and emet. Psalm 40.10, I have spoken of thy faithfulness and thy salvation. I have not concealed thy loving kindness and thy truth. Once again, they're connected together as in uh, Psalm 40.11. And then we have Psalm 85.10 where it talks about loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 86.15, uh, slow to, uh, but thou, O Lord, art a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. And then a key verse for us, Psalm 89:14: Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. And we made the point that in understanding key elements of God's character, we look at his entire essence and we realize that there are certain attributes of God that seem to be emphasized more and more than other attributes of God. And we bring these together under the term integrity, the integrity of God. 
And the elements that we see are His righteousness and His justice, His love and His veracity. And these four uh, focus on God as being the source of all truth and right and the source of all standard in the universe. His righteousness speaks of he, that speaks of his character as the absolute standard for all action. His justice is the a- application of that standard toward his creatures. His love expresses the motivation of God's character because he loves his creatures. Now, love, only a person can love. What love does is it not only brings in this concept of motivation, but it brings in the concept that we're not talking about just abstract ideas of righteousness and justice and truth, but that there is this personal dimension to it. Now, if you look at philosophy, you look at Greek philosophy, you look at uh, other religious systems or philosophical systems, you have the these characteristics can are almost treated in, 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 in as abstract absolutes. But here we see that there is a personal dimension to this, that truth in the Bible is personal. It's not just an abstract concept. It is personal. It is grounded in the person of God. Righteousness is a personal attribute of God. It is not just some abstract standard that's impersonal. It is personal. Justice is personal. It is grounded in a person. The, the person of God and truth is grounded in a person. So from uh, these two points that we just looked at, point two and point three, where we connect truth to the character of God and to uh, specifically to his righteousness, justice, and veracity, the idea, I mean, righteousness, justice, and love, his chesed love, his loyal, faithful love, we see that love is, is intensely personal. Under point four, I talked a little bit more about chesed, and chesed brings together a number of ideas. It emphasizes grace, undeserved merit, un, un, uh, unmerited uh, loyalty or faithfulness of God, undeserved love. It, it focuses on the fact that it is grounded in God's character. So chesed, while it emphasizes God's loyalty, it is a loyalty that is based on his righteousness, a love that is not based on divine righteousness is a love that is going to lose its foundation. And remember, foundation and stability is part of that key word, emmet, which relates to truth. So this shows the, the intricate interconnection of, of these attributes. God's love is unmerited. It is based on who he is. It's based on his own righteousness and his own character. And the fact that it is based on uh, truth gives it stability. It never, it never shifts. It never changes. This is not a love that's based on sentimentalism. It's not a love that's based on feeling. It's a love that is based on uh, absolute truth and absolute standards of righteousness. Fifth point I made was that chesed itself is a personal attribute. Only a person can love. And that led to point six, which then truth is then related to the love of God for his creatures. So all of these are personal attributes. They're not just abstract characteristics. 
That brought us to point number seven. As such, truth is related to the revelation of the person to his creatures. Truth is revelational. Truth has to do with the revelation of God and his thinking to his creatures. If we, we, we can look at truth in a number of dimensions. We can look at truth in terms of moral truth. We can look at truth in terms of spiritual truth. We can look at truth in terms of creation truth. There are certain truths that are absolute truths that relate to physical laws. Uh, there are truths that relate to logic. Logic is really an empirical study of, of, uh, of language and how people think that ultimately goes back to God. There, there's, God. God does not operate according to some abstract system of logic. Logic reflects how God thinks. Just as you can look at the creation and you can describe certain laws of physics, and these laws of physics simply describe how God manages on a day-to-day basis the creation through these laws that he, he's established. So they simply uh, give us a reflection of what is grounded in his character, and all of this is ultimately personal, not just at something that is abstract. You find this throughout the Old Testament, this concept of truth as revelation. It, it, it reveals that person, that eternal person of God. 2 Samuel 7.28 states, And now, O Lord God, Thou art God, and Thy words are truth. What God speaks is true because it comes from His character. Because God is true, He cannot speak anything that is less than true. So we look at this truth, what God speaks as a truth with a capital T. Now, we may go out and empirically or on the basis of empiricism or rationalism come up with certain truths, such as the law of gravity. That is a truth with a small t. What God says is true with a capital T. It is the truth by which we evaluate and interpret all other, all other data in creation because God's words bear this divine authority in and of themselves. They are absolute truth. Psalm 25.5, the psalmist says, Lead me in thy truth. That, that, you, you, that is a verbal leading. It is not just some sort of, oh, I think God wants me to do I feel like God wants God's leading me to this today. God's leading me to do this sort of a nonverbal impression, sort of an intuitive flash. That's not what this is talking about. Leading me in thy truth is talking about the fact that there is specific, objective revelation, including uh, prohibitions and mandates that lead us, that direct our lives and direct our thinking. Lead me in thy truth and teach me, for thou art the God of my salvation. So we are led by his truth, by his word. Psalm 43.3. The psalmist says, O send out thy light and thy truth. So there is a connection here between light and truth. Truth illuminates our thinking. It is not that truth has sort of a metaphysical power in itself. You know, some people will say that almost taking interpretation of truth is when we talk about the Word of God is alive and powerful and, uh, and that, uh, uh, the, tr- the, 
Jesus prays, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It doesn't have this sort of power in and of itself. It is powerful because it is truth. Truth, with a capital T, is has an inherent authority and witness to it, and it therefore enlightens man's mind to how things actually are. One of the greatest concepts I wrestled with, I think every Christian, every young Christian wrestles with at some stage of their life, is understanding that tr- truth and reality is what God says it is, not what we think it is. God determines what reality is. I, I read a great illustration of this uh, this last week. In fact, this is sort of a precursor of some interesting things to come. Doing some study on American church history and American history, and I'm playing with the idea of having a Fourth uh, of July conference this next summer, where we'll start. I think Fourth is on Friday this year. We'll start Thursday night and have two or three sessions every day and go through Sunday, because I want to do it in a compact, concentrated period of time and run through sort of an American church. What are the church history where we look at the foundations of our freedoms and our liberties and where this comes from, the influence of Christianity on the founding of, of America? And I've been doing a lot of study on this lately, reading a number of books on uh, the revolutionary period, on the on Washington and Jefferson and Hamilton. I'm trying to, and if I can have the time to do what I want to do, then uh, we will have that kind of a conference. But in the course of this, one of the things that I've been looking at and and looked at is slavery as it was practiced in in the U.S. And one of the interesting things that we see at play is that in the uh, colonial period, You've never been taught this in school, but in the colonial period, apparently Virginia was the first state colony or country to prohibit the slave trade. But they still allowed for the practice of slavery. Now, that's what you find in the Bible also in in Exodus, is that God prohibits the merchandising of of human flesh, but he still had... um, certain requirements or certain regulations for slavery. Now, the American worldview that we've been brainwashed with since the 1830s has basically said that slavery is inherently evil. But, you see, this is the point I'm making here. God tells us what's evil or not. And God says, God doesn't regulate evil. God prohibits evil. He doesn't regulate evil. And since God in the Mosaic Law prohibits the buying uh, prohibits a slave trade, bringing people into slavery. But yet he regulates the ongoing practice of slavery in a very compassionate way. It, that's not hypocrisy. For modern man will look at that and go, that's hypocritical. But see, the Bible defines what hypocrisy is. Modern man doesn't define what hypocrisy is. And so that's why I say, we, as a Christian, the most difficult thing for most people is to break down every element of thinking in their soul that you've been brainwashed with through a human viewpoint secular education system and then rebuild it 
according to God's word, where God's word defines what things are and not the social structures around us. So that's just an illustration that truth resides in the character of God. It is personal. It is not impersonal. It doesn't have an existence outside of God. God doesn't operate according to some standard of truth. He is the standard of truth. He is righteousness. He doesn't just conform to some concept of righteousness. He is righteous. So God is the one who defines what is right and what is wrong, and uh, man does not do that. And so when we conform our thinking to his, the enlightenment of his word, then we are thinking according to reality. Psalm 119.43 says, And do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for I wait the, the ordinances. And Psalm 119.142, Thy righteousness is an everlasting righteousness, and thy law is truth. Psalm 119.151, Thou art near, O Lord, and all thy commandments or truth. Psalm 119.160, the sum of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. So God's revelation is absolute truth. It becomes the standard by which we evaluate and judge all other things. That then becomes the foundation and motivation for obedience to God. This is point number eight. When we understand that his revelation is absolute truth, that then motivates us to obey God because we have truth. First Samuel 12:24 states, "Only fear Yahweh, fear the Lord, and serve him by means of truth. We serve God, that's application. We serve God by means of truth. Here we have an instrumental clause. We serve him by means of clause, uh, by means of truth with all your heart, that is, with all your thinking. So it it relates truth to thought. Lave, the Hebrew word for heart, functions very much as the Greek word nous, or cardia does in the New Testament, and that is the innermost thinking part of the soul. So we serve God by means of truth with all of our thinking. So it truth conforms our thinking to, to what he has decreed and determined. So we see from this, in point number nine, the Old Testament concept of truth is grounded in the person of God and related to his righteousness, justice, and love, that is, his integrity, which is all revealed to us by grace. In contrast to this, just to bring it down into a little application, in Islam, truth isn't what Allah is, but what Allah says. Allah isn't personally true. His character isn't truth. It's what he says. It becomes something that is external to Allah. And that's one battlefield we have today. The other battlefield, of course, is postmodernism, which says that there is no such thing as truth. All truth is relative. What's true for you isn't true for me. So if all truth is relative, if that's a truth, and all truth is relative, then isn't it also relative that all truth is relative? And that's the basic problem with modern man is they think they're being so sophisticated by coming up with these statements that all truth is relative, but it contains its own internal contradiction. All of that's the Old Testament. Now let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament, the Greek word is aletheia, and this is the word that is primarily used to translate the Hebrew emet. So the Greek word is aletheia, 
And in order to understand the Greek aletheia, we have to go not to Greek culture, not to Greek philosophy. We don't want to look at how uh, Plato or Aristotle understood truth. It doesn't matter what what Socrates or Hesiod or any of the other Greek thinkers thought about truth. We have to go to what what the Old Testament said about truth. So the foundation for the Greek aletheia in the New Testament is Old Testament truth. Truth is used primarily by Paul and John in the in the New Testament. It's only used five times in the other Gospels. Uh, actually, it's used seven times, but two of them are, the, are, are three times. You have one story, one episode that is related in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the truth is used in all three. It's the same story, same episode. So in actuality, you have to take two of those out because they're just repetition of the same thing. So it's only related actually five times. Yet Paul uses the word 44 times in his 77 chapters of the Pauline epistles. And John uses it 37 times in his 27 chapters. So obviously in terms of emphasis, John is the one who is, who is talking about truth. John says that... The incarnation reveals truth. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So it is in the person of Jesus Christ that we know truth. Once again, we see the incarnation of truth. Truth is not just abstract. Again, now it is instantiated, incarnated in a person. So Jesus is truth incarnate. John 3.21, John says, He who practices truth comes to the light. That is, you practice the truth that you have and you apply the truth that you know, then light increases, your understanding increases, and that is that continues to produce growth. Uh, we're to worship God, John 4.23, worship the Father in spirit or by means of spirit and by means of doctrine, by truth, by absolutes that are revealed in God's word. Furthermore, uh, God is spirit. Those uh, John 4.24 reiterates that those who worship God must worship him by means of spirit and by means of truth. And the truth there is that which is revealed in his word. We don't go out with some sort of subjective view of what worship is and then implement that. Um, Jesus said in John 8.32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And the truth here is the word of God, and the principle is that Real freedom only begins with the Word of God in the soul. True freedom is not uh, it can, is not abstract. You can't really be free until you are first free in a spiritual sense by faith alone and Christ alone. Then in John fourteen six, Jesus said, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me." He says three things about himself. He is the way, meaning he is the only way to God. Second, he is the truth. He identifies himself with truth. Once again, we see that truth is something that is personal, something that is intensely personal. Now, who is Jesus? Let's go back and think about John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word and the Greek is Lagos. In the beginning is the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Lagos is then incarnate, 
and he is full of grace and truth. And then Jesus, who is the Logos, says, I am truth. So Logos equals the truth, and the Logos is the word or communication. So when Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free, once again we have one of those interesting little double entendres that John loves, is that not only knowing the word in terms of knowing what is revealed in the Scripture, but having that knowing Jesus Christ, having that personal relationship with him, that is what sets us free. And he says that he is the truth. So he is, when you connect, you connect word, communication, revelation of God with truth and with the person of Jesus Christ. Then we look at the third person of the Trinity in John 14:17, and that's the Holy Spirit. He is the Spirit of truth, and this relates to, describes the function of the Spirit in, in Revelation. He is the one who reveals truth through inspiration through the human authors. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it doesn't behold him. John 15:26 uh, again the Holy Spirit called here the helper the paraclete is the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father so the third person of the trinity is related to absolute truth and again it is his function as revelation so truth is part of who God is and it is inherently uh, revelatory then in John 17:17 17, 17, Jesus prayed, "Sanctify them in the truth, thy word is truth." Actually, it should be more instrumental, "Sanctify them by means of the truth." It is by means of the word of God that we are sanctified. There are two means by which God matures the believer: the spirit of God who indwells us and teaches us, and the word of God which is the content. We can't understand and implement the Word of God without a relationship with the Spirit of God. That's why it's important to be in fellowship, to confess our sins before we learn the Word of God, to keep daily accounts or keep regular accounts of our sin. Uh, using First John 1, 9, every time we're aware of sin, make sure we're in fellowship. When we're in fellowship, the Holy Spirit is working with the truth to mature us and to produce spiritual growth in our lives. Then we come to the fourth point. That was the uh, third point, which is truth in, in the New Testament. The third point has to do with, with uh, truth outside of John. Paul connects exchanging truth for a lie with idolatry. In Paul, in Romans chapter 1, the unbeliever suppresses the truth. In Romans 1.19, or 1, Romans one. 18 to 20, men suppress the truth. They reject God, reject his existence, and those who are negative at God consciousness uh, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then what do they do? They exchange the truth for a lie. And then the next thing developed in that section is they, they began to worship the creature. Anything in the created realm, whether it is a concrete 
bird or animal or whether it is more or less an ab- abstract concept. Some people worship money. Money is ab- really an abstract concept. What you have in your pocket is just a just a, a concrete uh, representation of that. They, they worship money. They worship happiness. They worship personal pleasure. These are abstracts. They can worship all kinds of things. They can, they can worship ideological systems. Uh, so we worship the creature rather than the creator, and this is idolatry. Idolatry is set against the truth of the truth revealed in the Scripture. Now the point that I, that uh, John makes in First John, where he where he warns in the very last verse of First John that we studied, he warns off his readers not to practice idolatry. In the context, the idolatry he's talking about is misrepresenting the person of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what occurred in church history in Arianism, where Jesus wasn't fully God. He was just sort of a created God. And uh, that's called uh, that became known as Arianism and is reincarnated in modern times as Jehovah's Witnesses. It's also true in Mormonism, where Jesus isn't fully God. It's true in Islam, where Jesus is a simply a creature. He is a prophet. So in all of those systems, they are operating in idolatry. They are operating on false assumptions, completely divorced from truth, and they are operating in a in a in a world that is a, a, the creation of their own imagination. Now, I want to say something about Islam, just for a little side point. In Islam, Jesus is a prophet. Now, think about the, according to the scripture and according to extra biblical information that we have. Uh, it's clear and it's indisputable that Jesus claimed to be God. That's why the Pharisees crucified him. Now, in Islam, they claim that Jesus is a prophet. But if Jesus claimed to be God, then he's a blasphemer, so he can't be a prophet. Now, think about that. According to Islam, they want to make the claim Jesus is a prophet. But it's also clearly recognized Jesus claimed to be God. Well, if Jesus claimed to be God, he can't be a prophet because he's a blasphemer. So they they can't get away with that, and if we're ever in a discussion with someone who is is a, a Muslim, then that point needs to be uh, firmly and gently made. Uh, the other option, of course, is that Jesus, if Jesus claimed to be God and he wasn't, then he was insane. But if Jesus was insane, then, oh, he can't be a prophet if he's insane. So Jesus can't be a prophet if he's insane. He can't be a prophet if he claimed to be God. So that leaves us with only one option. That is that Jesus is who he claimed to be, and the Quran is completely false. That's the only uh, conceivable option. Well, we've looked at truth in the New Testament in John and Paul. Now let's look at truth in 1 John, point number 5. Truth in 1 John. John had a lot to say about truth in the first epistle. First thing he told us was, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, that is, if we live in sin, we lie and we do not practice the truth. So he talks about doing the truth, actually. And if we uh, don't do the truth, then we're not in fellowship. If we don't apply the truth, live in uh, consistent with God's revelation. Verse 8, he said, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and 
the truth is not in us. We can be out of fellowship, and in which case we don't have any relationship with the truth. Then in 1 John 2, 4, he said, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. He doesn't have a relationship with doctrine in his soul. He's not applying it. 1 John um, 2, 5, But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God or the love for God is, is perfected or brought to completion in him. By this we know that we are in Him. Being in Him is being in fellowship with Him because we keep His Word. And by keeping His Word, we demonstrate that we have a relationship with truth. So point number five, summary. Point number five, summary. Truth in the New Testament, therefore, is personal. It is the revelation of God. And it is related to divine integrity. It is personal, it is the revelation of God, and it is related to divine integrity. That's the same thing we see in the Old Testament. Truth is personal, it's related to the integrity of God, his righteousness, his justice, and his love. And it is uh, related to his revelation of himself. Therefore, point number six, truth then is an absolute the Bible grounds truth in God himself. It never changes. What it was true a thousand years ago is just as true today and will be just as true uh, a thousand years from now. So it isn't subjective. It isn't personal. If, if truth were personal, you had one truth and I had another truth, then we would have no basis for saying that it's wrong to commit murder. In fact, if truth is individual, you have no basis for making any kind of universal statements of, of right or wrong. Because one person can have one set of standards, another person can have a completely different set of standards, and they're both true. So it, see how that, if you push postmodernism to the limit, it completely fragments society because there's no universals anymore. And frankly, if there aren't any universals, there's no basis for even communication. If truth is cultural, then there's no basis for one country or nation making any kind of qualitative judgments on another. That's exactly why you see us in the quagmire we're in right now in relationship to international problems, is we have too many people and too many politicians in this country who have so bought into a relativistic concept of truth that they no longer think they have the right or the ability to make any kind of universal statement about what anybody else is doing because they have undercut the whole concept of truth. That's why thinking like this is so important. It helps you to understand what is actually going on in the world. Okay, back to verse 1. That's just our summary of the doctrine of truth. John says to the elect lady and her children, whom I love by means of truth. So truth is related to the character of God. Truth was incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. Truth is related to the revelation of God. So to, in order to truly love, we have to love by means of doctrine. That means that you have to know the Word, you have to understand doctrine, and your thinking has to be shaped by what is revealed in God's Word. So we love by means of truth. 
And then John says, and not only I, and see here we ellipsize the verb, that means it's left out, and not only I love, but also all those who have known the truth love you in truth. See, that, that's what he's saying. He just leaves that out, but that's what is being said here. He says, all those who have known the truth love. In other words, if you have two believers and they both have a love for the Word of God and they both have reached maturity, then they can exercise genuine love for one another. There's no such thing and there's no room in the spiritual life for personality conflicts. Now, we all know that there are some people who have certain personalities that we don't uh, gravitate to, that we may have a little difficulty with. But when you're maturing as a believer and the other person is maturing as a believer, whether they are a co-worker, whether they are a spouse, whether they're a family member, the Bible is saying that if you can get rid of the arrogance and get rid of the self-absorption, then you can work through any so-called personal conflict or personal problem because it is a different dynamic and that it relates to a spiritual dynamic. The problem is arrogance enters in, self-absorption enters in, a lack of humility enters in. People don't want to admit the fact that they might be wrong and so then that explodes into uh, personal conflicts. But the scripture makes it clear that those who are positive and growing and maturing can work through any so-called personal problems. And so John says, not only I love you by means of truth, but also all those who have known the truth. Because of, and this is a very important statement in the Greek, it's dia plus the accusative, because of, on or on account of the truth which abides in us. See, this love is, not, not only do we love by means of truth, but we, be, we love because of the truth that is in us. This is the motivation, the doctrinal orientation that we have, the doctrine that's in our soul. We study doctrinal orientation as a spiritual skill. That doctrine that we learn motivates us. It motivates us to love God. When we love God because we understand God and we have personal love for God and we understand that His love is a perfect love, a love that has perfect integrity, that, it, that conforms perfectly to His righteousness and His justice, then that in turn becomes the foundation in us for loving one another. I don't love you because of my character. I love you because of the character of God. I love you because of who and what he is, because of who he is and what he did on the cross, uh, not because of who I am or what I have done, but because of who Jesus Christ is. That is the standard for love. We know, John said, we know love by this because he gave his son to die for us. That's the starting point of love. So that becomes the motivator in our lives is a, is the truth our Bible doctrine in our soul, because of the doctrine in our soul which abides in us. Now we have a relationship with us. And remember, abide always includes the idea of being in fellowship with God, being in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit using that truth in our lives. So we love by means of truth, and we're motivated by the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. And then he gives his salutation in verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, 
in truth and love. He comes right back and ties these things together. So in these three verses, truth is mentioned four times and love is mentioned two times. So the major emphasis here is on truth by means of love. In verse 3, he gives the salutation that it is, he emphasizes three nouns, grace, mercy, and peace. Grace is undeserved merit. It is God's love towards the creature that does not deserve, has not merited, has not earned any of God's benevolence. It is unearned favor. Mercy is the application of grace. Grace is unearned favor or unmerited benevolence, and mercy is the application of that. It's the Greek Greek word uh, eleos, which means, uh, which is the application of grace. It's, it sometimes it has the idea of compassion. It's not an emotional term. It is treating people not as they deserve, but as they should be treated as objects of God's love and creatures for whom Christ died. Grace, mercy, and peace. Peace is the result of having received grace and mercy. In the Greek, it's the idea of rene, but it, remember the New Testament must be understood in light of that Jewish background. It is shalom in Hebrew, it, and ultimately it relates to that peace with God. This is not peace in the sense of an absence of an armed conflict. You know, this is time of Christmas, and people go around misquoting uh, Luke and the announcement of the angels that peace on earth, goodwill to men, and they think that peace on earth there is uh, a peace which is an absence of armed conflict. Therefore, we shouldn't go to war. We shouldn't be involved in military occupation. And Jesus also came to, said, I came to bring a sword and divide families. Now, let's reconcile those things. In, in the Bible, peace is never used in the sense of an absence of armed conflict. It is primarily used to refer to the absence of enmity between God and man. And second, it is used in contrast to uh, fear and worry and anxiety. So you have two emphases. One is the absence of conflict with God, and the second is uh, a stability, a contentment. It's related to joy and happiness that comes because we know that God is in charge of the details of our life. Therefore, we're not going to uh, worry about it. We're not going to be anxious. We're not going to be motivated by, pe- by fear. So grace and mercy emphasize God's initiative. Peace emphasizes the result of God's initiative. Peace will be with us. It comes from God uh, the Father and from Jesus Christ, indicating Jesus Christ and God the Father is the source of all grace and mercy and peace. Jesus Christ is identified as the Son of the Father. John is precise in in emphasizing who Jesus Christ is. He, 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 he's not just talking about Jesus. So you have a lot of people who talk about Jesus. You, you have a, somebody will knock on your door, and if they're a Mormon or they're a Jehovah's Witness, then they're going, to, uh, they're going to talk to you about Jesus. But the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness is a Jesus that is not eternal. He is not undiminished deity. That Jesus isn't the Jesus of the New Testament. It's somebody else with the same name. The same thing with the Mormons. They're going to come and talk to you about how they believe in Jesus, but the Jesus they believe in is Satan's, is Lucifer's brother. 
and that he is also a creature. There was a t- he's not eternal. So therefore, the Jesus that they talk to you about is somebody else with the same name, but it's not the Jesus that the Bible teaches. And this is the important issue that John is emphasizing here, is that Jesus as the Son of the Father indicates that he has all of the attributes of the Father. He is called the Son of God in other passages, which is an idiom for full deity. Son of the Father indicates his identity with the Father in terms of his attributes. And all of this is, he recognizes the grace, mercy, and peace are with us from God the Father by means of truth and love. We receive these by means of truth because he has revealed himself in absolute truth in his word and by means of love, because God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So if we are going to experience the application of God's gracious work, then it is done not apart from truth. We don't go out and just kind of say, well, how does God want me to have a relationship with him? And they just sort of generate that from inside of our own souls. We... um, we base that on what God revealed. He is the one who tells us how to have a relationship with him, and he is the one who defines what the issues are. And all of that is a result of his, his perfect love that is, based not on, that is based not on who we are or what we have done, but is based on who and what he is. Now, next time we'll begin in verse 4, where we will begin to look at the application of this in terms of divine love, and walking in truth with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning to understand more fully what love is and what truth is and how truth relates to love and that to fulfill the commandment Jesus gave in John 13 that we are to love one another as he has loved us means that we are to love one another by means of truth, on the basis of doctrine. Only as doctrine shapes our thinking and renovates our thinking are we able to uh, truly love as the Scriptures teach. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Salvation is not something you can achieve on your own. It's not a product of your own uh, will, your own flesh, anything else. It is simply an accepting uh, what someone else has done. It is believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty. He performed all of the work on the cross. There is nothing we can add to it, nothing we can uh, take away from it. All we can do is accept it as a free gift. So right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny. All you have to do is believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins that he paid the penalty, that he's the only way you will have access to heaven. At the instant you put your faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. It can never be taken from you, never can be removed from you. It is yours for eternity. Father, we thank you for the things that we have studied today and pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply them in our own lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.